0: Father, we thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, there's, uh, uh, there's uh, much on our minds as far as suffering in our body. Uh, Lord, we, we do pray for, for Betty and just for recovery there, that there would be no complications um, with uh, the, the, the wasps things, that that wouldn't interfere with um, or, or be infectious or interfere with the, the knee stuff at all or anything like that. Lord, we pray for Gary. We don't know what's going on there, uh, but you do. Uh, we pray that you would please um, be with him, comfort him. I pray that uh, we could be able to be in contact with him today and just um, encourage him. Uh, Lord, please give him uh, just uh, encouragement in you and direction in you. Um, and uh, just pray that you give the doctor skill and wisdom and knowing what's going on. Uh, Lord, we, um, we just pray for Jenny. Thank you that she's home now. Um, and just pray for her recovery process. I, I pray for her and Stan. Uh, Lord, it's just um, they are both have their own um, ailments, oh Lord God, and uh, we just pray for grace for us to know how to come alongside them, but also just that uh, you provide for them, you protect them, you guard them, keep them, and um, and, and bless them, oh Lord God. We love them. We thank you, um, thank you for them. Thank you for our body, and um, Lord, when one part suffers, the whole part does, and so um, we just pray um, for our brothers and sisters this morning who um, aren't able to make it, and um, just pray that uh, you would encourage them. Uh, bless our time as we talk about uh, the New Testament canon, and help us to understand your word, help us to understand how you've acted in history, and um, I pray that we would be mutually encouraged, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so I um, we, um, we are, we finished the Old Testament canon last week, um, we're in the New Testament canon, and remember, what we're doing in this is we're, we're kind of setting the stage for uh, how to read the Bible better and well, um, and to do that, it's helpful to know, okay, where, how did we get our Bible, right? Uh, what is it? Um, where did it come from? So we talked about inspiration first and uh, the dual authorship of Scripture, human author, divine author, working such that the product is God's Word. And then we've been talking about, well, okay, how was it recognized? How was uh, how are the books of um, the Scriptures recognized as Scripture? And so we talked about the Old Testament canon, and what we said is basically, um, if you're talking about the theological principle of canonicity something is Canon something is inspired authoritative scripture as soon as it is written by the nature of what it is um, the, the 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 idea of canonicity in ter- terms of like um, okay we know something's canon as soon as it's written but then how is it recognized so it may be recognized in time only later as the community, that that book is written to, that that scripture is written to, uh, comes to recognize it as scripture. So uh, it may take a little time between the inspiration of the book, the writing of the book, and the recognition of the book. And really, the the key the key theological principle that strings that, that is true of both Old Testament and New Testament canon is the idea that scripture is prophecy, in the sense that. Prophecy doesn't just regard the future. A prophet is someone who speaks for God. So a person could speak for God to their own contemporary audience about current events. They could speak about the past. They could speak about uh, the future. Doesn't matter. All that uh, is the idea of a prophet is just someone who speaks for God. Someone into whom God is using as a mouthpiece um, for for Himself and speaking. uh, You know, think about those tests. So the idea is the tests for scripture as written prophecy, uh, really it boils down to the tests of a prophet, right? So you recognize the prophet, you recognize the author of scripture, then you recognize the book. And so uh, remember some of those tests from Deuteronomy. Orthodoxy, which means it has to align and it has to agree with what has already been written. Um, Can't contradict it. Um, It has to be 100% accurate. Um, it, 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 if a prophet says, well, I'm speaking for God and then says something that's not accurate, then it can't be prophecy. Um, it can't, it can't be genuine. So, because God can't lie. Um, so, uh, there's, there's that aspect of it. And, um, uh, so that continues, I would argue, even into the New Testament. And we said that the foundation for this is those passages in Deuteronomy where, Moses says, you're going to be, there's going to be a prophet like me. Uh, And then he talks about how do you test the prophet, whatever, but you need to listen to this prophet. Now we said that that sets up two things. One, it sets up a chain of prophets um, that, you know, guys that like Joshua who's writing or Samuel or other authors of scripture. So you could say a little P prophet if you wanted to. Um, but then there's the prophet like Moses. So there's kind of this key figure that's going to be like Moses. Moses is very special as a prophet. Uh, Numbers talks about how he speaks with God face to face. So there's there's more immediacy between Moses and God. And so we would expect the, the 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 prophet like Moses. He's going to come with signs and wonders and doing amazing things to authenticate his message. Um, but he's going to be very special like Moses. Um, And so uh, that sets up a trajectory not only of, okay, we got all these prophets writing books along the way, but then the expectation for the culmination, really, of the prophetic office um, in the prophet like Moses. And like we said, and we went through some of these passages, I'll just remind you of them, they're still waiting. The people of Israel still recognize that prophet hasn't come yet. By the time you get to Jesus' day, by the time you get to the New Testament, he hasn't come yet. Uh, just to remind you, you can turn to John one twenty one if you want. And just to remind you of this, because if we're tying in with, um, you know, recognizing the New Testament, well, how does that tie in with this culmination of the prophetic office and looking for the prophet like Moses? Um And I'll start in verse 21, and it says this, when John the Baptist comes onto the scene, John one twenty-one, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? So they're thinking about that guy from Deuteronomy 18. Now, obviously, they recognize a lot of prophets that have come before. They recognize the scripture, but they're looking for this culmination of the prophetic office. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. And really, this comes right after John's prologue, right? Which is very important. What what does John say in his prologue, 1-1 through 18? Jesus is who? The Word. That's his name. Um, He's the great revealer of who God is. He is God. And then verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, Full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Watch this. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So already you see it there, and in connection with this idea of Jesus being the word, being the prophet uh in john in his own way is really saying hey this is the culmination this is the culmination of revelatory ministry no one has ever seen god the only god or the only begotten god who is at the father's side he has made him known that's what jesus is doing as the prophet the culmination of revelation you can see this in acts 3 uh we talked about this um um uh, that in acts three, twenty-two through 24 stephen's giving uh, no this isn't stephen this is the uh um the apostles are giving a speech uh, and they're essentially saying hey moses talked about a prophet like me and they're basically saying jesus is that guy jesus is that guy and even if you tie that in with something like hebrews so turn over to hebrews hebrews 1 1 through 2 um says this long ago at many times and in many ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So this is the prophet like Moses. How did Moses know God face to face? Well, even in a greater way, we've got the one who knows God face to face, uh, the Word from God, uh, Jesus Christ. And so we we understand that his ministry forms the basis of the capstone of Revelation. Now you're like, wait, 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 wait. If Jesus is the capstone of Revelation, then why do we, you know, what about the Gospels? What about the New Testament letters? Well, they're connected, but we need to understand first that Jesus is that prophet. He's the culmination of that prophetic ministry. So it sets up for the New Testament uh, canon and also the closure of the canon as a whole. Um, So that's where we're going with this. Any questions up to this point? Okay, so we know that Jesus is recognized by all the signs, all the wonders that he's done, right? He's, he's authenticated, right? We know that. But here's the deal, right? Not only is Jesus the prophet, like Moses, the greater one, the one who's culminating prophetic revelation, but then, like I just said, how does that connect with the other authors of Scripture, well, really, uh, it, it gets back to a key metaphor that we see. We see it in the Old Testament, but we see it especially in the New Testament. The idea of, uh, really, the church and the foundation of the church and what the church is. So, um, if you can turn there if you want. We're going to go there when we return to Matthew. Matthew 16, 18. Uh, this is like the foundational text for Jesus uh, talking about the church in his own ministry. And what does he say? You are Peter. You're a stone, and on this bedrock, this Petra, uh, I'm going to build my church. And what is he talking about there? We've talked about this text several times, but I think he's talking about not only Peter, but all the apostles, which are really standing there right before him. And he and he, it's Jesus is setting up for this metaphor of himself being the cornerstone of the structure of the church, and the apostles being the foundation of the church. And you see that metaphor picked up on, say, uh, Ephesians 3.20. The apostle Paul uses it, so you can go to, um, or 2.20, excuse me, uh, Ephesians 2.20. Someone go ahead and read that. Right, so a key New Testament metaphor, and I, like I said, it stretches back to the Old Testament as well. But um, is that um, the people of the Christians, right? The church are likened to a temple. Um, so people are likened to stones being put into this temple, right? And Paul's using that metaphor. But I think that stretches back to the Old Testament. Jesus links in with it, Matthew sixteen. Uh, Paul's talking about it here. It gets talked about elsewhere. Um, But here, here's the key thing, right? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we think about Jesus the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the most important part of the building, of the temple, right? It orients everything. It's the foundation for everything. Um, It's the key piece, so if you think link that together with the idea of Jesus being the prophet, the culmination of revelation, but now he's connected. He's connected with who? The apostles and prophets. That's what Paul is saying. Well, which prophets? Um, let, let me just uh, the prophets he's actually talking about here are not Old Testament prophets. They're actually New Testament prophets. How do I know that? Well, you script, skip, skip down to verse um, uh, uh, well, let's say th- verse four and five of chapter three. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So there, revelation is happening to current prophets in Paul's day. So the same, the metaphor he's using up in 2:20, uh, uh, he's he's linking in with that and saying, hey. Um, Christ is the cornerstone, but the apostles and New Testament prophets are linked in with Christ, forming this foundation of the new temple, which is the church, uh, which uh, does a couple things. It helps us understand um, if the church is a new thing, and it is in redemptive history, well, you need revelation, you need information about, okay, how does this now work? with the church since it's new um, how does it work and you need revelation to explain it and so that's what the new testament really is doing that's how the apostles and new testament prophets are functioning as a foundation Um, okay we need this we're having building this new structure christ is building this new structure through the spirit the church Um, we need some foundational information we need the foundational ministry of jesus absolutely and then his apostles and New Testament prophets, okay? Um, And then along with this, uh, how many times do you lay a foundation? Once. So this also sets up for the closing of the canon, uh, the New Testament canon, right? Because if the idea is Jesus is the culmination of the prophetic office, and he's the cornerstone of the church, along with the New Test, the apostles and New Testament prophets, which is a foundation. You lay that foundation once. What's that telling us is like, okay, this is setting up for a closure, um, and really it gets linked with, well, when do the, when does the office of apostle, when does the office of New Testament prophets cease, right? Uh, so they're linked. They're linked together. Okay, does this make sense? How this is kind of. You, there's a lot of imagery that we're tying in with we've got the prophetic the jesus is the prophetic uh, culmination but we get this picture of um his ministry and the apostles ministry being this foundation of this new thing the church uh but once that foundation is laid we're 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 good to go into this new age uh, there, there's more to say but um does this make sense so far any any questions Okay, so what is an apostle, fundamentally? Yes, someone who speaks for God, even a little—they definitely speak for God, so they are—they have prophetic gifting. So all apostles are prophets, not all prophets are apostles, okay? Yeah, someone who's seen—witnessed the risen Christ, talked to Christ. What does the word apostle mean? Yeah, sent one, and even a little bit more specifically, it's used in that culture in that time of an emissary, uh, often used of an ambassador. Um, I like to use the uh, idea—another writer gave me this this idea, but it's really helpful—the idea of a power of attorney. Um, It's the idea of someone who can speak on on behalf of another as if they were really there. Uh, You guys know the idea of power of attorney, like in terms of finances or medical decisions, well in a similar it's an analogy right it's not a 1 to 1 but um similarly that's what the apostles are supposed to do um, turn over to Matthew 10:40 so we've already gone through this in our study of Matthew but uh Matthew 10 um 40, and this is when Jesus is sending out the 12 to do their ministry in Israel, but I think the principle there, it, um, you know, kind of defines what the apostles are supposed to do more generally. What does Matthew 10:40 say? <coughs> so you see that ch- chain of succession there, right? Uh, the, uh, Jesus is the Father's most personal representative, and then he transfers it to the apostles, right? The apostles are Jesus' representative. They're his emissaries. They're his powers of attorney um, that act on his behalf. And you see Jesus setting up for this, even leading up in the the, you know, the, the, the last night before he's crucified. Turn over to John 16. You can see him doing this He's already been preparing the apostles, but now he's saying, all right, I'm going to go away. Um, I, I'm going to depart. But he sets up for um, uh, more, right? He sets up, says, more is coming. 16, someone read uh, Matthew, uh, John, excuse me, John sixteen twelve through 15. Uh, through 15, please. Again, you see the chain of succession there, right? And Jesus is saying, hey, look, guys, uh, I'm leaving, and I got a lot more to say. Uh, and remember, who is Jesus? He's the culmination of the prophetic office. So the culminating prophet has more to say. How is he going to say it? He's going to say it through the apostles. And he's going to say, hey, the Spirit's going to come, he's going to help you, and he's going to bring you into remembrance of all things, which kind of explains the Gospels, right? Like, how can you write all this stuff down and remember all this stuff? Well, we've got the empowerment of the Spirit, um, and Jesus says, yeah, we're setting up for that. Um, So you see how this works together, right? Jesus even, and there's a couple other places in John, you know, 13 through 17, where he really sets up for more truth is coming, more revelation is coming, I'm speaking as the culmination of the prophetic office, but you guys are my apostles. You're connected with me. Therefore, the culmination of the prophetic office, it includes um, the apostles and New Testament prophets as part of that foundation of the church that we're talking about. Um, so it all ties together, right? And But essentially, it's the same thing, right? Old Testament, we're talking prophets. New Testament, we're talking about prophets. The only thing is, now we've got the prophet— uh, the ultimate prophet. and so it's setting up for the kind of final or m- not quite the final final closure, but the um, the final closure of Scripture in, um, uh, that we're seeing. And so same thing, right? All of the New Testament um, uh, apostles and prophets, they're accredited um, by Jesus ahead of time, but then even uh, by the those whom they're writing to. And you can see in the New Testament, how the authors are self-conscious that they are giving uh, prophetic revelation. Let me give you two, uh, a couple places for Paul, that Paul is aware that he is writing uh, um, prophecy, he's writing scripture. Uh, go to 1 Corinthians 7. Now, this is probably maybe one of those texts where it's confusing, uh, and you're like, well, that's kind of weird. Um, but... Let me find the right place. Yeah, so someone someone read First Corinthians seven, ten through twelve. And you're like, Really? We're talking about this in connection with the canon, but it'll make sense here in a second. So now, what in the world does this have to do with anything? Well, it's that little phrase, um, that parenthetical phrase. The, in verse 10, he says, not I, not Paul, but the Lord. And then, then he says in verse 12, I, not the Lord. I, Paul, not the Lord. What's he talking about? Now, sometimes you read this, or at least I used to read this as like, so is this like Paul giving his opinion, but then how is it inspired? That's weird. So here's what I think is going on, and it actually shows that Paul is self consciously writing Revelation. Because what he's talking about is he's saying, hey, Jesus addressed this issue. So in verse 10, when he's talking about what he's talking about there, um, what he's saying is, I didn't say this, Jesus said this. And he's talking about the situation and the topic at that point in time. He's saying, Jesus addressed this. And if you go back to the gospel, say Matthew and Mark, you will see, that the topic that is going on there is one that Jesus addressed. But then he gets into a new situation that Jesus didn't address in verse 12. Uh, I not, uh, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And what Paul is saying there, he's not saying, I'm giving my opinion. He's saying, Jesus didn't address this, but here let me tell you what the way to deal with this is. So it's not opinion. It's actually a way of Paul saying, "This is." He's putting his words on par with Jesus. Is really what he's doing. Do you see that? Um, and uh, so he, he's not saying, "Here's my opinion." He's saying, "All right, this isn't a situation that the Lord addressed, but here, let me let me address it now." And effectively, he's putting his words on par with Jesus as revelation. Right. There's another, um, even a clearer place in 1 Corinthians where you can see that Paul is self-aware about giving, um, about giving, uh, well, writing scripture, that he's writing scripture. 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 37 through 38. So, Someone go ahead and read that. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So this is in a section where Paul is talking about like speaking in tongues, which is a revelatory gift, and prophecy, which is a revelatory gift. And Paul is saying, hey, look, I'm writing this and you better recognize um, that this is a command of God. Um, and if you don't, you're not recognized as a prophet, right? So it's the same kind of idea and, and uh, language even that you would see in the Old Testament. Um, but Paul is self-aware, right? He's self-aware of writing scripture. Um, and, and you can even see how other authors of scripture uh, understand that other people are writing. Um, so if you think about um, uh, Peter... Um, even in relation to Paul, second, turn over to second Peter. And Second Peter 3:14 through16 says this, "Therefore my beloved, since you are waiting, uh, are waiting for these, that's the end times, essentially, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters, plural, when he speaks of them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So what is Peter doing there? He's accrediting Paul's writings as an apostle, and then he's also saying, hey, there's multiple letters of Paul out there, and he's addressing these issues. Um, and uh, the the ignorant and unstable, they twist Paul's letters like the other scriptures, meaning what? Paul's letters are scripture. Um, so you see the self-awareness of the New Testament and the apostles saying, yeah, we're giving scripture. We're part of that foundation of the church, uh, giving revelation. You can see uh, in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, Paul... Um, uh, Paul uh, quotes two scriptures. One is in the Old Testament, but then the other uh, is really a quotation that is only found in Luke, and so he's essentially accrediting Luke um, as writing scripture. Um, And so again, just like in the Old Testament, we saw some of these examples where writers are affirming other earlier writers, you see the same in the New Testament where it's like it's self-aware that the the authors are self-aware that they're writing scripture and they're even affirming one another as they go. Uh, you can see John, right, at Revelation. So uh, Revelation is the last book written. John, uh, even in how he talks in the, say, Revelation 1, 1 through 3, he's he's like, um, the Father gave a message to Jesus, and Jesus sent the angels, and the angels spoke to me, and uh, I'm speaking to you. And uh, again, he's self-aware and writing prophecy. That's how he describes the book. He decides, describes it as a book of prophecy, not just because it's telling the future, obviously it is, uh, but there's some things in there, like the seven churches, those are current events, he's speaking for God. It's the same thing from Old Testament to New Testament. And since John is the last apostle, uh, and he's part of that foundation, right, of the New Testament um, prophets and apostles, once that last stone is laid, we're done. Then the canon is closed. Um, so sometimes you read um, the end of Revelation. So go ahead and read. Go to the end of Revelation. Uh, someone, go ahead and read Revelation twenty-two, eighteen through nineteen. Okay, now which book is he talking about? Yeah, the book of Revelation. So he's not... Sometimes you hear people quote this and say, well, this is talking about the whole Bible. Um, No, that's not... It's pretty clear he's talking about the book he's writing. So this text in and of itself, in and of itself doesn't defend the closure of the Bible. But what does? Uh, We... What does defend this book as the closure of the New Testament canon is this is the last book written. It's the last book written by an apostle as that foundation stone of the church, together with the fact that what is Revelation 20 through 22 similar to? What's it really similar to? Good, I heard it. Yeah it's very, very similar to Genesis 1 and 2, right? Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 through 22. Like, if you just read Genesis 1 and 2 and then you go over and read Revelation 21 through 22, you will see how much of the language and the concepts are similar, purposefully so. So, um, in and of itself, can you just say that, well, yeah, um, you know, uh, John wrote those verses 18 and 19 and he closed the Bible? no but because of the nature of the topics in Revelation. And God's not just writing an encyclopedia, is he? He's writing a story. And how does a story close when you have proper resolution to the plot, which is exactly what Revelation does. Um, And so together with the fact that John's the last apostle, he's writing as the last apostle, that says, okay, we're closed, okay? Except for one thing, Remember how the scriptures, we've, like Malachi, ends and sets up for the next thing? Well, so does Revelation, doesn't it? Because it says prophecy in chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. It talks about two prophets who were going to come, and they're going to prophesy. So that says, all right, um, there's going to be more revelation from God in the future around the time when Christ is going to come. So, it's kind of like the same situation as in Malachi's day. Um, Revelation is closed for now, but Scripture already set up for what we're looking for next as far as Revelation, which will be around the time of Christ's second coming, and the two witnesses, which will give myriad of authenticating signs, which always authenticates a true prophet. Um, So, that's kind of the internal way of looking at the canon, right? You're hearing Scripture's own testimony of how and self-awareness of how it's being written and compiled, and the authors of Scripture, uh, and even Jesus talking about this. So that's kind of the internal understanding of the closure of the canon. Now, just like with the Old Testament, there's external information that I'll go into here in a second, but that's kind of the internal way of looking at it. Um, any questions up to, um, on that, on the New Testament canon and how all this works? Yeah, Pat. I guess I'm kind of confused because I actually used that scripture to some Mormons. Okay. Yeah. Adding uh-huh. scripture like it Mormon and David. So was that not correct? No, but um it, it's I mean they're so you're you're right in that what they're doing is wrong in adding to scripture. So they're they're adding to scripture in a wrong way. Why? Because what are they claiming? They're actually claiming Joseph Smith was a prophet. And you're like, okay, I'll play your game. Let's let's test him as a prophet then. Um, and what's one of the criteria? Well, orthodoxy, it has to agree with what's ever been written. Doesn't match on that because it teaches a salvation by works. So we know that that can't be prophecy. It also strikes out on the fact of 100% accuracy. Like anything that the prophet claims to speak, it has to be 100% accurate. Well, um, even in like um, some of the, I mean, that's very easy to, dis, to discredit Joseph Smith, um, right? Because there are things he talked about or even the tablets and what it, the content of what this was supposed to be saying. And then you find out later, oh, this is, uh, this is actually, like I think he claimed, uh, I forget which books it was, if it was the original like tablets or some other writings he got and he said, oh, it's talking about this. And at the time they didn't know the language that it was written in. And then as history unfolded, they actually found a way to translate that language, and it was, like, not even close to what he was claiming it to be. So there's another example where it's, like, he's not 100% accurate. He can't be speaking for God. And so it discredits all of that ministry, in addition to other things, right? Like, uh, another thing that you see even in the New Testament, uh, in in 2 Peter and in Jude, he talks about, like, These guys that are claiming to be apostles or they're claiming to be teachers or prophets of some sort, they're immoral. And so that's another uh, indicator that it's wrong, right? Which, again, we could look at Mormonism and there's immorality. Um, So it strikes out on all of those things. So you just wouldn't go to this verse and say, well, your books are wrong because of this, you would actually say, well, let's, if you want to claim that, let's, let's play your game and let's show you that you're, you're wrong, right? Um, and uh, that I'm not going to listen to you. In fact, it, um, scripture itself says I shouldn't listen to you. So, um, and, and there's, there's other ways you could go about that kind of conversation as well. So, yeah, good question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, forgive me if I, if I don't use a perfect example, because I'm uh, reaching back about 25 years to a I had. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's relevant in that, um, see, so when you talk about recognizing a prophet by their, um, not being wrong, right? So, how would they have known that about things, like, uh, let's say Jonah, where he said, Okay, in three days you're going to have this happen, mm-hmm. and then God relents? Mhm. Well, couldn't anybody say that? Or, well, you know, we didn't have judgment because God relented, you know? <laughs> right? Well, at least specific to Jonah, God always sets up... So what's he doing with Jonah, right? He's saying, okay, unless you... Well, he doesn't even say it, at least as it's recorded in Jonah. It's like 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed, period. But what you read and say, uh, it's Jeremiah, and I think it's Jeremiah 18, where essentially God gives how he operates. And he says, sometimes I tell a nation that um, I'm going to destroy it, and yet if the, the nation repents, I'm going to relent. And then he says, um, but if maybe I'll tell a nation, oh, you're in security and you're good, and yet they trust in that and go after wickedness, then I'm actually going to bring judgment. So it, it's a clue and an insight into here's how God operates, and God tells us how he operates. And so what happened with Jonah is um, uh, is they recognized and I think this is where the fish comes in, the whole situation with the fish, actually God used that to get into um, the, to get the Ninevites' attention so that they would listen to him as a prophet. But God actually played by his rules and said, Jonah didn't say it explicitly, right? He just said, 40 days and you're going to be wiped out. Um, But the way God actually operates and elsewhere, there's always kind of this implicit knowledge that, okay, if there's repentance— God, God is the kind of God that's merciful. He wants repentance. He wants that to happen, and he will relent. So that's, that's kind of how at least (laughs) it's... Yeah, they got a hundred more years. Yeah, as a people, they got a hundred more years, but at least that generation seems like a, a lot of them came to a saving knowledge of the Lord. So... Right. You know, and you're looking at someone well, but but then there would have been the prophetic, you know, the the three days in the realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Well, yeah, they were already, so, and that's where we get into the external, like the actual history of, okay, there's the internal testimony of, like, here's scripture, but then how did it work itself out in history? I I think one of the things you, um, and we'll walk through it um, here in a second, but basically, um, who authenticated the apostles and the New Testament prophets? Well, the people they were initially speaking to, just like the Old Testament, right? like the Old Testament prophets, they're speaking to a people, and they got to see the signs and wonders and the authentication, right? And then it's like, oh yeah, this is Scripture, and then it's treated as Scripture into, um, into the, the future, right? Um, so, in a sense, we're kind of leaning on the, that original th- authentication um, as, as we get it. Now, there are other things that we could say that authenticate Scripture um, that we could use as evidences for our day right now, but as far as the authentication of the author who wrote it, you're you're talking about kind of the original people who who saw and recognized and knew and uh, those people. Now that transitions us nicely into into okay, what about the history? Like uh, John writes Revelation, what happened? We already kind of went through that with the Old Testament. So what what about the New Testament? So remember this, the cre- canon is not created, it is recognized by the church. Canon is canon when God writes it. So we're not talking about creating the canon with the church, the church is recognizing it. And that's where people will say, oh, the church created the canon in 400 at the such and such council. No, um, it was, took some time to recognize it. And even the actual amount of time that it took to recognize it was not that long. Um, to collect it and put it into the form we currently have it, yeah, that took some time. But as far as the books themselves, uh, it didn't take that long, which makes sense, right? If you've got uh, Paul writing to such and such a church or John writing to such and such a church, it's like, oh, it's John. He's writing. We recognize that. Uh, but then what, what's the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament in terms of audiences? There's a key difference. Gentiles meaning versus Jews, which means what? What's the implication of writing to Gentiles versus Jews? Think of geography. You gotta you gotta teach them the culture that you're coming. Up. I'm saying that well. Um, you know, you can't like like how Luke was talking to. People. Okay. Well, language and just dis- yes the essentially concentration right when you're talking to just the jews where are they versus like church here church here church here church here that gets a little more complicated right the process gets messy the process gets messy as far as john so so think about this right you've got rome your romans goes to rome you know, Ephesus is going to Ephesus. First, first, second Thessalonians are over in Mass. So you've got the letters kind of all over the place, right? So then they have to be collected. The churches have to recognize them. Now Paul himself says in at the end of Colossians, says that hey, when you're done with my letter here, go ahead and pass it along to the church of Laodicea. So there's already an understanding that this is scripture. So it's beneficial for this church, but it's actually also beneficial for all the churches. Um, but that just that's a different that's a different animal than the Old Testament, where you're like writing it to one people all in one. I mean, granted, there's the exile, right? And there's there's difficulties there. But it's concentrated versus it's kind of spru- spread out once you got into the New Testament. So it takes some time. But even so, the the there's um, good evidence that information spread very quickly. The roads were good. The travel was good. So, here's an example. The oldest fragment of the New Testament scripture that we have available is from the Gospel of John. It's just like a little scrap of a parchment, dated to about A.D. 150. So, we're talking maybe 50, 60, 70 years from when, distant from when John wrote it. Uh, John probably uh, wrote the Gospel of John to Ephesus, or from Ephesus. They found the scrap in Egypt. So what does that mean? It means they're distributing these things all over the place, and it doesn't take that long for it to get distributed and recognized in that that world. Um, and the way this worked was kind of organic. Um, it, there's evidence that uh, there are probably, um, so remember what we said, they move from scrolls to codexes, which is like a book Essentially, the book gets, starts getting used, but there's these collections that you couldn't fit on a scroll that you would put into a book, namely the Gospels. You can't put all four Gospels on a scroll, but they valued having all four Gospels as multiple attestation and witness to the one Gospel, and so they used the Codex, the Gospel Codex, and so they collect the four Gospels together. And then Paul's letters became a collection, Uh, In fact, there's even a good possibility ancient letter writers used to write it themselves a copy and keep a copy. So they would send a copy and keep a copy. So it is a good possibility that Paul himself decided on his own, like, all right, we're going to keep these letters. I'm not going to give those other two Corinthian letters those you know, those weren't inspired or whatever, you know, but it's possible that he himself uh, decided on that collection. So now you've got a gospel collection, you've got Paul's letter collection, and you can see in the copies and the manuscripts we have, um, you know, kind of the development of this. Um, Acts and general letters become another kind of collection. And then you've got the church just using them. So they're not even, they're just using them. They know it's authoritative and they're using them. Um, and then, then it's like well when when did it all kind of co- coalesce well what became happened is that you've got you know false gospels being written or wrong works and the church recognized them right away it's like uh, this is this is not scripture or this is this is purporting to be written by Peter but it's certainly not and we don't we reject that you can see that in the sheer numbers of manuscripts that are copied you've got like a handful like a couple scraps of like the gospel of peter Whereas like our gospels, there's like thousands of, or hundreds at least, manuscripts. So even in the number of copies that are available, you can see they recognize what was true and what was false. And so, and then you get into the guys that come right after the apostles, like Clement. Um, He writes in 96 AD. He's, uh, the the guys that are coming right after, they're quoting the New Testament as scripture. Um, And so they recognize in, in the churches, this is what's scripture, this is what's not. You've got other controversies that arise. You've got Marcion, who essentially says, eh, we're going to jettison the Old Testament, and we're going to actually jettison all the Jewish elements in, like, the New Testament, which is a lot of the New Testament. Um, and the church is like, no, Marcion, you're a heretic. But what, he's, what, he, what Marcion does, Marcion is the one who actually comes up with, like, the first canon. He's like, well, let's take Luke, and let's take 10 of Paul's which are, they're mutilated. He rewrote them to suit what he wants. Well, what does that presuppose? It presupposes there's already an accepted canon, and he kind of takes it and mutilates it. So the church already knows what the documents are. You get Eusebius writing in, uh, well, he's about 350. He's an early church historian, and he kind of walks through. Well, here are the clearly accepted books in all the churches. Here's some ones that some people dispute about, um, which... The only ones that really had any level of dispute were like Second Peter, maybe Second and Third John, because they're so sh- small. Um, maybe James, um, uh, but but basically, 22 out of 27 were like no questions whatsoever. And even when you get into let's say um, uh, the later councils, where they actually say, all right, let's let's actually create a list. So these councils, they're you know happening in the 400s, late 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 300s, early 400s. Let's actually create the list or or write the list down. It wasn't really an issue of debate. It it wasn't like they come to these councils and it's like, oh, they were fighting over days and weeks of like what's supposed to be scripture and what's not. It was like, oh yeah, it's these books and not not these others. Done. Um, So it was already recognized. um, uh, The books were already recognized and in use. Really, uh, our New Testament, I mean, we would say it happened right. Uh, you know, like the, the books are authenticated right away. But at least as far as the books that are recognized in a broad scope, I mean, most of them by um, the mid second century. Um, it's very, very uh, early and earlier than a lot of other people will will admit. They use the criteria of apostolicity: who who was an apostle or who was under the jurisdiction of an apostle. So, like Mark writes under the jurisdiction of Peter. You know, Luke kind of writes under the jurisdiction of Paul. Um, um, they they made sure that uh, what was what was written in the scriptures it agreed with the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. So, you know, you got people living that heard the apostles, and then you've got this book coming out, and it's like, well, does that match with what Jesus taught and what the apostles taught? If it didn't, it didn't. That's our test of orthodoxy. It gets it gets thrown out is it old? They actually said, well, is it, is it old enough to be considered a scripture? They recognized the canon's closed. If it's not old enough, we're not going to accept it as scripture. Um, and then use in the churches. Like we said, uh, there, was, there was, they were passing books all over the place because they recognized it was scripture. And so one of the criteria of canonicity was, well, how many churches use it? And how many churches recognize that this is, is the New Testament? See, it's an organic process, but you can see it work its way out in in history, and it's not like a huge issue of debate. Yeah, there's some books that are like, well, maybe we should include, some churches thought, well, let's include the Shepherd of Hermas, and then this church is like, no, no, we're not going to include that book. Um, So it's it's an organic process, and yet we can see how God is working through the churches and working through those people to say, yeah, um, these are the authentic books that should end up in the canon, so that's a flyby of like the history of what happened. There's a lot of detail and there's a lot that's been written on it. So you guys want to read some more on it, I can um, maybe point you to a couple places um, that you can read more on it. But um, it's, it's, it's not like the church decided the canon. It's just, it recognizes the canon over, um, over that period of time. So any last minute questions before we close? Yeah, Leo. Yeah, it, it, I mean, so um, Jude, I think, was one of those books that was like some, oh, Judas, Judas. Well, like something like a, uh, the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Peter or whatever. So there are, I mean, you can, you can read these gosp- gospels. They're available, but immediately when you read them, you're like, oh, this is like, this is not the same thing. But even so, uh, even apart from that, the early church is like, yeah, we know about people, like, writing false. Uh, they're writing as Peter, you know, writing something like this. And they're like, we don't accept that stuff. So they are aware that it's out there, and they're like, we don't accept that, which is why you see, like, in the manuscript copies that we have available, like, those are, like, you've got a handful of manuscripts versus, like, hundreds with, like, the canonical um, canonical books. Yeah. Yeah, and Yeah. It's very yeah. That not on the same level. Right. But the important thing is historically, one of the things they never tell you when they boast that, oh, we found some extra writing that, you know, revelation like the gospel to Thomas. Most of those quote gospels were actually found in a singular cache <laughs> of the river, you know, in, Right. yeah 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 right yeah yeah same thing with the apocrypha like even from what we see in the new testament testimony like it seems like jesus authenticates its genesis to second chronicles which is the order of the hebrew canon right so where does the Apocrypha come from? Even within the Apocrypha, there's some writings that indicate we understand that we're not writing scripture, right? Or you got guys like Josephus that are saying, hey, look, we've got 22 books, and yeah, there's some people that have written some history since, since the time of Artaxerxes, but it's not, it's not the same um, because it's not prophetic, because they haven't seen the, the succession of prophets. So, yeah, good questions. And I said, there's a lot of good stuff that's written out there. Um, stuff that you can look into. Um, but again, for our purposes, we just want to kind of understand how is this stuff recognized? How has God produced it? How has it been recognized so that we can read it better? So good, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you how you have worked through your people, your prophets, your your messengers um, to give us um, the Bible that we have. And we thank you that you have not left us without a word. You've given us a, a true and sufficient word that we can live by and we ask for grace. Uh, to live by it, O oh Lord God. Help us and prepare our hearts to hear it even as we go into the gathering this morning. We ask these things and thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen.